Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, as we continue our series in Genesis, last week we saw that Cain, after he killed his brother Abel, was banished from the presence of God to be a wandering fugitive. And in today, in our text, we're going to see that uh, God, we, we see this contrast between the ungodly line of Cain and then the godly line of Seth. Two lines and really two cities or two kingdoms. We're actually going to see this contrast develop throughout the rest of Scripture, actually. So today, two lines, two kingdoms, Genesis chapter 4, beginning in, we're going to go back to verse 16 here. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he had built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehuja, Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two, two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zelah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech had two wives, Ada and Zillah, or said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed the man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, a very easy name to pronounce. For he said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also was born, a son was born, he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your holy and infallible word to us this morning, and we ask, O oh God, that you would help us to understand your word and to hide your word in our hearts that we might please you and might not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we recall how God created us, as our, as our catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, we were created as worshipers to worship God and to extend his kingdom over the face of the earth. But we recall that Adam, our covenant head, he listened to the lie of Satan. He wanted to be God himself and have his own kingdom. And so he sins against God. And when he sins against God, he plunges himself and us and really all creation into a state of sin and death and condemnation, into a state of hopelessness. But then in Genesis 3.15, we recall this, this important verse that really, that the rest of the Bible is unpacking for us, Genesis 3.15, God promises to send a Savior through the offspring of the woman, through Eve. And last week, we saw how Eve was absolutely elated, thinking that God had fulfilled his promise by giving her a son that she named Cain, which means acquire or possess. But then we saw it didn't take too long for a tragedy to strike as Cain kills his brother Abel, and then he is banished 
from the presence of God to be a wanderer, a fugitive. That raises a question for us, and maybe at the, the, readers, at the, at the original readers of the text here, and that is, well, what, whatever happened to Cain? How did it go for, for Cain? And the text shows us that far from wandering off into oblivion, Cain and his descendants actually spearhead the development of all the things that would, that would advance society. Yet they do that apart from God. And as this godless, or we could say Yahweh-less, because we all have gods, we're all worshipers, we're all worshiping something. But as this godless or Yahweh-less culture rises, we see that the moral depravity of the culture intensifies. So we see that on the one hand, and on the other hand, this is contrasted to the son that's born to Adam and Eve, another son, a son whose name is Seth, appointed, granted. And Eve sees this now as the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, and this time she's right. Though she may not have a clear understanding of the full implications of that and how it's going to work itself out, but she's on the right track. And our text here, and really the rest of the Bible, shows this contrast between the ungodly line of Cain, the spiritual seed of, of the serpent, that exalts man, exalts man's ingenuity, exalts man's self-sufficiency, exalts man's power, exalts man's kingdom. That's contrasted with the godly line of Seth, that is the spiritual seed of God, that worships the Lord, that proclaims the Lord, that glories in the Lord and his kingdom. And so the main idea of our text this morning is this, is that we, as God's people, must worship the Lord and proclaim his kingdom in the midst of a sinful society or the kingdom of this world. Only two points to look at this morning. So I hope you don't feel cheated, but I'll see if you get your money's worth. The first point is that rebellious man forges a society or a kingdom apart from God. So the first point here, rebellious man forges a society or kingdom apart from God. Verses 16 through 17, we see that Cain, he settles in the land of Nod, and we see something that should immediately cause us to stop and think. He builds a city. Now, there's nothing wrong with cities, nothing wrong at all with building a city. The problem is with the one who's building the city, and the one who's building the city here is Cain. Because you remember, that was not God's intention for Cain. God's intention for Cain was that he was going to be a wandering fugitive. He wasn't supposed to settle. He wasn't supposed to, to have rest. But no, Cain, no. What does he do? Instead of being a wandering fugitive, he settles. And then we recall that God promised him protection. But here, Cain says, I'm going to build the city. I'm going to have my own protection. Instead of resting in God's promise of protection, he makes a place of refuge and rest for himself, a city, a kingdom of his own. And so you see here, there's no repenting. There's just a defiant thumbing of the nose of God's judgment against him. And King Cain here then names the city after his son, Enoch, which means dedication. Some say it means forge, dedication, though it may be the, the, the correct 
uh, definition here. We're going to see with these lines, we're going to see similar names here. You're going to see another Enoch in the line of Seth. That's next in, in chapter 5. But here, Cain names his son Enoch, names the city after his son. Why does he name the city after his son, this, this name dedicated? Why does he do that? And I, commentators say, and I agree, the point is, is that Cain is dedicating the city not to God, not to the one true and living God, but to himself. It's not about the name of the one true and living God. It's about Cain and his name being perpetuated forever and ever. So he defiantly exalts his name over and against the name of God. This is my kingdom. And so Cain then defiantly forges a new life apart from God. In essence, what Cain does is that he lays claim to the false promise that Satan made to God, in, or that Satan made to Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember the promise was, God knows in the day that if you eat of this tree, you shall be as God. You'll be God unto yourselves. You'll get to rule the creation for yourself. You don't have to bow the knee to God because you can be God yourselves. You get to determine what's right and wrong. You get to be the captain of your own ship. And Cain here seizes on that promise, that false promise, and that's what we have here. In this city kingdom, Cain, not God, is king, and he makes the rules. Now, we see here is a contrast between what we call the city of man with the city of God. This was what uh, Augustine talked about in his book, The City of God. And so Augustine here, in this quote, I love what he says about this. Let's see if I can get this to work here. I will go back. <laughs> Augustine says this, the earthly city was created by self-love. This is the city of man. It's created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city looks for the glory of men. The latter, that is the city of God, finds its highest glory in God. So you see what Augustine is saying, and this is what the scriptures teach. There's the one city, the one kingdom. Man, it has contempt for God. It exalts man. It, it glories in man. But the city of God glories in God. And for us, as we look for that, that city, we have a contempt for ourselves, our sinful selves. Now, there's an application here for us to think about. And that is this. Apart from Christ, because I said last week, it's real tempting for us to look at these characters like Cain. We're going to see Lamech a little bit later. For us to go, well, I'm so glad I'm not like Cain. Because he was such a bad person. I would never do what he does. And I think we all know that, yeah, once I start thinking that way, I'm not thinking rightly about things. I'm going down the wrong track here. And here's the, the reality is that apart from Christ, we are like Cain. We defiantly refuse to repent. Day after day, the Lord 
You know, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And day after day, we spurn his love. We, we spurn his glory. We exalt ourselves and our, our own little kingdoms. We create our own little kingdoms. In other words, I'm going to do life the way I want to do life. I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. I'm not going to have to bow the knee to God. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If it seems right to me in my own way of thinking, then it must be right, and I'm not going to be confused by the facts that tell me otherwise. All of us are like Cain. We defiantly refuse to repent. We build our own little city kingdoms to forge our own way and exalt our own name. We're going to make a name for ourselves apart from God. What we need to understand is that that city of ours that we're building and constructing every single day apart from the Lord is built on a foundation of sand. And one day, Jesus makes this point in Matthew chapter 7, when the storms come, the storms of life, but not just the storms of life, but the storms of God's wrath and judgment. When that day comes, that city that we've built, because it's built on sand, will collapse. And this is part of the glory of the gospel for us. And it's this, that Christ on the cross takes all of our Cain-like rebellion upon himself. Whereas Cain thumbed his nose at God's justice, Jesus doesn't subvert God's justice, but he bears the full brunt of the weight of God's righteous justice against himself for our sins, so that those who by God's grace alone turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone have access now to the true eternal city that Hebrews 11.10 says has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. And then we see here with Cain, we see the line develop, everything apart from God, and then we see what starts with Cain becomes magnified in his descendant Lamech. Verse 19, we see that Lamech takes two wives. He has two wives, said to his wives. Our culture, it seems, and you should know, is not the first to redefine and desecrate the God-ordained institution of marriage. It starts with Lamech. And just to go back over this again, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, 24 says this. And by the way, this is quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. So those say, well, Jesus never said anything. First of all, Jesus is God. And so the law that you have in Moses is Jesus' law, ultimately. And then, yes, Jesus quoted this very passage here when he talks about marriage. He says there, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this, of course, is coming on the heels. We, we see Genesis chapter 1 and, and how God creates us in his image. He creates them male and female, having created them male and female. Now, God, he, he, he creates the institution of marriage here. And a couple things, a couple points we've got to point out here. First of all, 
we see that there are only two genders, not hundreds of genders and not a sliding scale of genders, two genders that are determined biologically, not psychologically. That is, you don't get to pick which gender you want to be based on how you feel that day or any other day. That's what's happening in our culture today. And of course, that has tremendous ramifications in the, in the lives of not just those people who are making those decisions, but then the culture that, that says that is, that's totally fine that you do that. And now we see men now who say that they're women, and they go and participate in women's sports, and, and go into women's bathrooms, and women's lockers rooms, posing as women when they're not. I read recently, saw recently how in the MMA, mixed martial arts, a man who claims to be a woman is now in women's mixed martial arts, and of course, you know how that's going to end. And it didn't end well for the, at least one of the women that he fought. So only two genders, and then we see your marriage is between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that, one man, one woman, is sin. That's what it is. It's sin. Now, I know folks don't like to hear that. Let me say as gently as I can, and with all due respect, God couldn't care less about our opinion. He doesn't care what we think about his righteous law. And what ought to terrify us is that we are taking his law and spurning it and then redefining it because we don't like it. And one day, we're going to have to stand before the holy God of the universe and give an account. That should terrify us. Either God's word is the authority or our opinion is. And there's last count, I think there's 8 billion people, so 8 billion peoples, 8 billion opinions potentially on the face of the planet. We're either going to submit to God and his word or we're not, and if we're not, there's going to be a price to pay. If not now, eventually there will be. And Lamech here rejected God's word. He attacks the foundational building block of society. What's the foundational building block of society? It's marriage in the family. Lamech attacks that here, but so do we in our culture today. We look at a lot of the things going on in our culture today. Why, is, why are things so messed up? And a lot of it can be traced right here to the breakdown of marriage and the family unit. It's a direct correlation very often between those two things. The statistics are very clear. So attacking the building block of society here, redefining God's ordained institution of marriage and, of course, the family. And so we see here that Canaanite, not Canaanite, but Canaanite culture defines morality for itself. We will decide what's right and wrong based on how we feel, based on what seems right to us, based on our own 
sinful desires. And they're driven by self-gratification. And then verses 20 through 22, so we see that in verses 20 through 22, we see this advance, advance in technology. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, I see stuff about tents in, in animals and bronze and technology. Well, yeah, this is not like the iPhone, you know, but this is technology for that day. These were tremendous advances, as the commentators point out, advances in the sciences and technology. We see advances with, uh, with, with animal husbandry. We see music, music and the arts. And then we see here a work with uh, a particular interest is Tubal Cain, who forged instruments of bronze and iron. So he's forming equipment, farming equipment, other things, but also weapons. Some say a sword. You remember the flaming swords that were guarding Garden of Eden, guarding the trees of life? Seems, maybe, this is one of the things now sinful man say, I'm going to have my own sword. Tubal means to hammer or to sharpen. And then you see the name Cain is, is added to that, which commentators say brings to mind, let's just say it brings to mind some bad things. So you can see that, yes, while these are good things, they could also be used to harm people for, for evil. So we see here the rise of culture. We see the invention of things that help people to thrive, that, that help civilization to thrive. But notice it's all apart from God. Now, something to think about here. We see this line of Cain, and we see them doing all of these wonderful things. They're, they're actually here fulfilling the cultural mandate to take dominion. They're taking dominion. They're doing all these great things. But you have to understand that's happening under the providence of God, who governs all creatures in their actions according to his infallible will. And in his common grace, God is permitting this to happen. That's important for us to understand. We look around the world today, we see many people doing amazing things with technology. We see incredible advances in, in the sciences, in, in, in the medical field, for example. And we should praise the Lord for that. In his common grace, he's enabled people, gifted people, to do these things for the benefit of mankind. And so we, we can and should give God praise for that. I remember when I was in the hospital in Italy, I gave God praise for those nurses that served me. And I, for me, I just thought like it was God, as if God was ministering to me through them. So... We have to keep in mind here this idea of common grace, and we see here that God is sovereign in his providence. He's the one who enables them to make these discoveries for the good of mankind. And then verses 23 through 24, uh, we see Lamech's poetic commentators, some call it a, a sword song celebrating this murderous act of vengeance in this decree of never-ending vendettas. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I remember I thought to myself, and then I discovered somebody else that thought it as well, that uh, Lamech here seems to be the first gangster rapper. And then I thought, yeah, in the first mafia, mob boss, right? He's going to 
make people an offer they can't refuse, and he's unjust. Now, this is contrasted to Cain, right? With Cain, we see Cain's case there. It was God who judged, God who gave the verdict, and it was rooted in mercy. It was rooted in mercy. But here, Lamech, he's a God unto himself. He's a tyrannical king, vindicating himself. And we see the, the, the imbalanced scales, the sword of justice, as it were. And we see the imbalanced scales. He wounds somebody because he wounds somebody. That deserves the death penalty. And then he makes the unjust decree of never-ending vengeance. Timothy brought this out here in, in, Matthew, in, in our time of confession, Matthew 18 through 21 through 22, Jesus is almost certainly, hit the next slide, Jesus is almost certainly hearkening back to this passage here. Peter says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And so you see the contrast here between unending revenge and unending forgiveness. Now, again, as a word of application here, it's really easy to look at Lamech and go, I'm so glad I'm not like Lamech. I don't have a heart of vengeance, of vengeance, a murderous heart. I don't have unjust scales. But I think God is teaching us something here that we're more like Lamech than we think. I think that's part of the, 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 the thing here. Every conceivable sin to include vengeance and murder, dear friends, is in our hearts. When someone does me wrong, I'm going to get them back. And, you know, vengeance is a very subtle thing. Kids, when my sibling didn't share the toy with me, so I'm not going to share my toy with them. That's, that's vengeance. That's revenge. Adults, how about this one? The silent treatment. It's very, it's very subtle. Not that you're actually gone against it. I'm just, I'm just you have a conflict with your spouse or a friend or someone in church, and you say, I, I know how I'm going to get that person back. I just won't talk to them. I'll pretend they don't even exist. That'll show them. You know what that is? Besides childish? That's vengeance. It's an attitude of murder, ultimately. And you know, the issue for us is that there's no statute of limitations. We, we nurse our resentment in our hearts instead of nursing forgiveness. We meticulously keep a record book of wrongs, and we're ready to open that, that record book of wrongs at a moment's notice to retaliate. And it doesn't matter, like I said, there's no, there's no limitation here, statute of limitations. We can go back years and go, you remember that time you looked at me cross-eyed when I was at the house? You looked at me funny. I remember that look. And we bring down our wrath upon them. Here's the problem. The problem is that we think that God owes us forgiveness. 
without thinking of the great cost of forgiveness. On the cross, Christ, as we said in our time of confession, quoting Isaiah, he was crushed for our iniquities so that we could have our sins cast as far as the east is from the west. When you sin against God, what do you do? Lord, forgive me. No, I'm not going to forgive you. But Lord, please, please, I beg of you, please forgive No, not until you do all these little things, not until you whatever. We cry out to God for forgiveness, but we're not willing to forgive others. How can we not then extend forgiveness to others if God has forgiven us for so much? How often? Every time, just like God does with you, every time you offend him with your sin. That's how often. Easy stuff, right? Lamech's song is a defiant boast before God. He calls upon his own name. He worships himself. And so the line of Cain, it shows the devastating consequences of sin that exalts man and in man's power, in man's ingenuity. Everything is focused on the, focused on the city of man is focused on man and his kingdom. I want to create a utopia here on earth apart from God. But that takes us to the second point. You hit the slide. God's people worship him and proclaim his kingdom. Verse 25, we see that Eve bears a son, names him Seth, which means appointed. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, as we see this in the text here, it comes chronologically, but we shouldn't see this as chronological. This is really kind of happening at this. After, after Cain is exiled, you shouldn't see. This is, these, now, these things are running parallel, more or less what's happening here. So Cain is exiled, then Adam and Eve, they have another son, Seth. And we see her, first of all, we should, need to, we should understand her grief a little bit. Right? She mentions that God's given her another son because Cain killed Abel. In one act, Eve lost two sons. Imagine how devastating it is to just lose one child. She loses two. Yet in the midst of that grief, what does she have? Faith. She continues to cling to the promise of God. She hearkens back to Genesis 3.15. This is with the term offspring. She connects it back to Genesis 3.15. God is going to send his Savior. He's going to fulfill his promise. I know he's going to fulfill his promise. I believe. I trust on that promise. I stand upon that promise. I cling to God's promise. And so must we. In verse 26, we see that a son is born to Seth. God is preserving the godly line through whom he would fulfill his promise to save his people. And the son's name is Enosh. You've got to be careful when you talk about this name means that and this name means that. Sometimes there's a significance and sometimes you can really strain the significance. Enosh means man, mankind. Some say also weakness. 
I like this one. Language resource. The theological workbook of the Old Testament says this. The word enosh reminds man of his transience and of his lowly position before the Almighty. And so, well, we don't know for sure. We've got to be careful as we're talking about the, the, the definitions of names. It sure seems like a deliberate point in the name, doesn't it? In the line of Cain, the focus is on man's strength and self-exaltation. They're gods unto themselves. They boast in themselves. But Eno speaks to the human condition. No matter how powerful and resourceful man might think of himself, we are weak. We're transient. We're men. We're human beings. We are not God. And it is at this time the text says then that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's not that nobody ever called upon the name of the Lord prior to this. We know that they did. We saw in the Garden of Eden, and we saw with Cain and Abel, and they bring the offerings. The point is that this is the beginning of the public corporate worship of God. That's what this is. Now, why is this the beginning of the public corporate worship of God? Well, again, I think it's the contrast, to note the contrast between the city of man and the city of God. Whereas the Canaanites exalted their own name, the Sethites call upon the name of the Lord. They identify themselves by that name. We who are weak are sons of God, not by power nor by might, but by God's Spirit. By His grace we are who we are, and we worship the Lord alone. And we are going to declare His praises. A couple of key lessons here to think about. First of all, we remember Moses here is writing Genesis, and the audience is the people of Israel. They're on their way to the promised land. And before they get to the promised land, we remember uh, Numbers 13. Moses sends out the spies to spy out the land. And they come back with the report. You remember what the report was? The people in the land are too strong because they have fortified cities. Does that sound familiar? Well, that sounds an awful lot like the line of Cain that we just read about here. We're like grasshoppers. So the object lesson here, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you're like, wait a second, yes, they are strong, but God. He's strong, he's mighty, and God is with us. We're in the line of Seth. We worship the one true and living God. Yes, we're strong in him. We won't be overrun by our enemies. And then we see the seed of the woman who would save God's people would come through Seth. You know, we see these genealogies, and like, oh, man, why go through all this painstaking detail with all this one, we got that one, and we get to Jesus in Christmas time, and we see that the line, well, obviously it's very important, right? Because God wants us to see these things. And there's a very interesting thing in Luke's genealogy. We see that Seth appears. Seth is mentioned. But guess who else is mentioned? Enosh. Weakness. Man. Frailty. The one, then, who would save us from our greatest enemies of sin, death, and Satan would not come as a mighty warrior. He would come in humility. He would come in weakness. Next slide. This is the testimony of the prophets. 
Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Next slide. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23-29. We preach Christ and him crucified a stumbling block to Jews and the folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called Jews and, Gent Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. It's wiser than what that the Canaanite civilization came up with and any, every other civilization since then has come up apart from God. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to do what? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God, the almighty God, his power alone. And that's the power that we rejoice in. That's the power that we praise for our salvation. We don't rejoice in ourselves. We don't praise ourselves. I'm so glad I was so smart to figure it all out. And in my own power and strength, I bowed the knee to Christ. No, I'm so glad that I was a sinner and Christ and his power raised me from spiritual death to spiritual life and gave me the gifts of saving faith and, and repentance. And now, I, this one who was weak, I'm now strong, not in myself, but in the Lord. But in the Lord. And then we see here the grace of corporate public worship as an application. How important is corporate public worship? It's a testimony to the lost culture. As they're worshiping the Lord publicly, it's a testimony against the Canaanites and their civilization. It's a testimony against them. We're going to see this play out with Noah. And it's the same for us. When you get up in the morning and you get in your car to go to church, I'm certain that your neighbors from time to time see you do that. They know where you're going. And if you talk with them, hopefully you have, they know you're going to church. And it's here where we're strengthened by God for the spiritual battle of daily life. And note this, God doesn't merely suggest that his people gather together to worship him publicly. He doesn't say, you know, if you can squeeze it into your busy day on Sunday, one day a week, if you can get here, that'd be great. If not, it's no big deal. Mm -mm. divine command. You shall gather together, and you shall not forsake the assemblings of yourselves together. You shall assemble together for public worship, because it's vital that we do that as a people. It's absolutely crucial to do that. Dr. Carl Truman and Pastor Todd Pruitt recently had a podcast, and they said that, quote, a disturbing phenomenon is plaguing churches all over the country. 
since the lockdown, many Christians have become too comfortable with worshiping from home over a screen, dressed in their jammies, eating donuts, and quite possibly not worshiping at all. Live streaming is a gift. And for those who really can't make it here, it's a gift. It's breadcrumbs. It's not like being here. Point is, if, if you're sick and you can't make it, by all means, don't come to the, gather, to the gathering. If there's something else related to COVID, you have an underlying condition, we understand the fear that goes with that. But if you're not coming to church because, you know, it's just not convenient. I don't want to get up that early. Or the service is too late, it should be earlier. Whatever the excuse is, it's just not convenient. I have one word for you. And I say this with a tremendous amount of pastoral love. Repent. Repent. Christ died for his church. He died for this. Not says you could be off staying home by yourself, watching something on TV, reading your Bible by yourself, not connected to the body of Christ. He died for this, and he wants you here to minister to you. It's vitally important. Unless there's some really a real reason why you can't be here, make every effort you can to be here. It's important. I had this illustrated to me. Our hearts should yearn to be in the corporate gathering. It should be like, I can't wait for Sunday to be there. I saw this on Friday in our Explore group, young adult group. I won't mention her name because I don't want to embarrass her. And I am not going to mention her name because sometimes I do that and I mention the name and people laugh. But we were getting ready to leave and she hadn't been in church. I think it, maybe it was just one week because she was out of town or whatever and she just said, I can't wait. I can't wait to come to church. I was like, man, that's it. That's the attitude that we need to have. You know, the line of Cain shows us that apart from God's grace, fallen man is the spiritual offspring of Satan. We want to build a world for ourselves. So the question for you today is, which city are you in? Which kingdom are you in? I want to implore you to turn from your sin if you never have. If you're in the city of man, recognize that one day that that city will be swept away in judgment. Stop pouring your life into a city that has no foundations. Flee to King Jesus today and experience the love and mercy and grace and then be granted access to the city with foundations that will last forever and ever. And if you have, if you're a Christian, remember you're in the world, but we're not of the world, and we can appreciate the good things that we see. But the world 
It's not how we identify ourselves. That is not our name. By God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, we have been given a new name. And what is that name? Child of God. And so constantly call upon the name of your heavenly Father. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Pursue Him every day through reading your Bible and prayer and come to the gathered fellowship every Sunday as you're able to, to rejoice in Him and to praise Him and to fellowship with brothers and sisters. And then, is there somebody in your life that you need to forgive? Pray for God's grace. Remember the cross. And go and forgive that person or persons. Not tomorrow, but today. As soon as you can. Because Christ has forgiven you of so much. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace toward us in Christ. Lord, these are challenging, uh, challenging words for us. We thank you for your grace, and we pray for your grace, Lord, that you would work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.